So let's give attention to the reading of God's words, God's word, I should say. Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon, the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? 
Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Uh, Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we are grateful that uh, you love us, that you care for us, that you have revealed yourself in your word, your son. But we also rejoice that you have revealed yourself, your son and your spirit in your written word. And so we pray as we give attention to it, that you would remove the distractions from our hearts, that you would open our minds, that you would remove the veil of sin, that you would enable us to receive your word, not only to receive it unto life and greater sanctification, but that you would fill our hearts with praise, thanksgiving, worship, and honor for you, our triune God, that you would build up your church. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things I can say about my wife is that she's perhaps one of the best well-read people that I know. She's always reading all types of literature, Pulitzer Prize winners, all sorts of uh, classic historical fiction. I think that my own reading uh, before we got married was probably limited to books about war, maybe comic books, and of course, theology books, you know, things uh, related to the Bible. But one of the things she encouraged me to do was to expand my horizon and to read, uh, to read more literature and really good writing. And so I said, okay, that's fine. What's one of the books that you would recommend? And she said, well, my absolute favorite is The Count of Monte Cristo. Big old doorstop of a book. Nevertheless, I eventually decided to plow on into it, and I I read it. Uh, Though in interest of full disclosure, I used the audio book. It was easier for me to digest it in that fashion. But we'll just say for the sake of the sermon that I read the book, right? Okay. Well, this is a story, as uh, you may or may not know, about a man by the name of Edmond Dantes, who was falsely accused of treason against the government. Things were going well for him, and then there was a plot afoot, and they accused him of treason, and so he was imprisoned for a good part of his life. Uh, he was able to escape, <clears throat> and as he escaped, and you know, he finds a huge treasure, which gives him almost an infinite amount of resources so that he could basically do anything that he wanted upon uh, his escape from prison. And so what was it that he decided to do? He says... Uh, I want to get revenge on the men that ruined my life. And it seems like a reasonable thing to do. He basically says, I have been a God of mercy. Now I shall be a God of vengeance. He wanted to get back at the people that had utterly ruined his life, taken away his fiancée, had uh, thrown him into prison, and French prisons in the 18th century weren't exactly uh, nice places. 
But it seems reasonable to say, well, why not? The law of retribution, if these men had utterly ruined your life, why not ruin their lives? Why not pay them back for the crime that they had committed against you? Again, it seems like a reasonable and fair response. And yet the Bible gives us a very different message. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, so right then and there, you see just an utter conflict between at least the initial message of the Count of Monte Cristo, where Edmond Dantes wanted to become a god of vengeance against those who had wronged him, who had ruined his life, Versus the message of the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, uh, that, no, we're never to, to take, we're never to take vengeance. How, how can this be? And how is it that we as Christians are never supposed to take vengeance into our hands? Well, I think an answer comes to us, particularly from the life of Joseph. And so what I want us to do this evening is I want us to reflect upon, first and foremost, the life of Joseph. Because if there was ever a man in the Bible whose life mirrors, or at least anticipates, the life of Edmond Dantes, it would be Joseph. He was falsely accused. He was imprisoned. He was sold into slavery. If there was ever a man who had more wrongs committed against him and for which he suffered great loss, it was Joseph. But then secondly, what I want us to do is I want us to reflect upon the life of Joseph through the lens of what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 8. Because I think that these two passages, although in one sense they're not connected, other than, of course, being inspired by the same God and appearing in the canon of Scripture, I do think that they speak to the same themes that we find in the Scriptures, particularly in the desire to seek vengeance, and instead of seeking vengeance, placing ourselves in the hands of God and letting him be the God of vengeance rather than us taking the place of God and trying to exact punishment upon those who have wronged us. And in that regard, I want us to see how Paul links not only, uh, he links the doctrine of justification, which we spoke of this morning, the fact that God declares us righteous in his sight based upon the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith alone, how Paul links the doctrine of justification ultimately to our vindication. In other words, when people uh, bring false accusations against us, when they mistreat us, when they sin against us, we have to see the link between vindication and our justification, and this is where we can take a look back through Romans 8 and see all of these things unfolding in uh, the life of Joseph. So we're going to look at the life of Joseph, then we're going to look at Romans chapter 8 and look back upon the life of Joseph, and then third and finally, we want to think through the implications for the Christian life. Why is it that we're not supposed to seek vengeance? And what happens to those who do wrong against us? Are they going to go free, never to face any consequences? What, what all is going on and how is it that we should respond under such circumstances? So let's give thought first to the life of Joseph. We've read here in Genesis chapter 37 uh, that initial story about <clears throat> Joseph's interaction with his brothers You know, there's a sense in which we have to recognize that there's a lot more going on here than simply just sibling rivalry. 
There's undoubtedly a rivalry at play when Genesis chapter 37 identifies Joseph as his father's favorite because he was a son of his old age. And so we see that his father uh, gave unto Joseph this coat of many colors, which in, the, which in the ancient Near Eastern world would have cost a lot of money. It was expensive to dye fabrics, uh, and it was not something that you just ordinarily had. And so he had what was more or less a coat suited for royalty. You know, so imagine that if he was to, to give his son uh, an expensive tailored suit, and then the rest of the brothers did not receive anything like that. You know, the, you know J- Jacob would say, you can go to J.C. Penney's. Uh, I'm going to go and have uh, Joseph uh, fitted at uh, Nordstrom or one of the higher-end department stores. So in one sense, Jacob sets his son up, unintentionally so, but he nevertheless sets him up for a conflict with his brothers. And so this is where you begin to see some of the wrongs that are going to begin to be perpetrated against him. But we can also note about Joseph that he lacks wisdom. He lacks wisdom because he undoubtedly receives divine revelation from God. Revelation about the future and in particular about the relationship, not only of his father and mother, but also of his brothers towards him. That in some point in the future, his brothers will have to bow down to him. His brothers will have to bow down to him. Now, he is foolish in the way that he reveals this divine revelation. But notice what's going on here is that Joseph is God's prophet to the representatives of what eventually becomes the heads of the tribe of Israel. In other words, Joseph is preaching divine revelation to his brothers. He is giving unto them God's word. And how do they respond? They respond with anger. They respond with jealousy. They respond with hatred. So ultimately, it's not just simply a sibling rivalry. They're ultimately rejecting God's appointed prophet in their midst. And so because of this rivalry, because of this rejection of God's prophet, they conspire against Joseph to kill him. And of course, we know how the story ends up, uh, that they decide against it. They say, why don't we just sell him into slavery? And so they sell him into slavery and they lie to Jacob and say, yeah, your son Joseph was killed by a fierce and wild animal. And so this is, we could say, the real first significant injustice that Joseph has to suffer. If he ever had a right to payback or to getting back at his brothers for this gross injustice, it certainly would be here because they have kidnapped him in essence and sold him into slavery and he is hauled off into a foreign country given over to Gentiles. Now, we know uh, the rest of the story as it unfolds is that, you know, uh, it seems as if uh, Joseph is is placed in this insurmountable uh, situation where he is now a slave in Egypt. And nevertheless, as he serves in Potiphar's house, he begins to rise once again. 
You know, he does good work. He's trusted by Potiphar so that there is nobody else in all of Potiphar's house that he trusts more than Joseph. He gives him full reign and rule over his house with one exception, and that is with his wife. Understandably so and rightfully so. And we know the story. What happens that Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. And he's so insistent He is so insistent on maintaining righteous and ethical conduct that he flees from her presence so quickly that she tears off his garment. So in other words, he's committed to doing the right thing. So we might think, okay, Lord, he's done the right thing. He's been righteous when nobody is looking. He could have just as easily taken advantage of his position in Potiphar's house and he could have had his way with Potiphar's wife. But he said, no, to do so would be to sin against God. And so he's righteous. He's holy. And what payment does he receive for his righteous and holy conduct? But a false accusation. A false accusation that Potiphar's wife brings against him, and it's one that winds him up in prison. There's a sense in which we can say he is confined yet again a second time. The first time he's confined to a pit, this second time now he's confined to a jail cell, all for a crime that he did not commit. The first time he's confined because he's God's prophet. Uttering divine revelation and his brothers reject him. Undeservedly so. Again, he is falsely accused of a crime for something he didn't do. Okay, so then he's in prison and once again he's on the rise. You know, he, the, 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 the captain of the prison guard recognizes how righteous he is, his wisdom, and, and he again begins to go to the top, rise to the top, if you will. And this is where uh, he uh, helps uh, the, his fellow prisoners. He gives them advice. He interprets their dreams. And he tells them, when you tell Pharaoh... And when you go back to serve Pharaoh again, remember me. Remember me. And he's forgotten for a while. He's forgotten. And well, at the end of the story, we know that at the end of his life, he's finally vindicated. You know, he has had one setback after another. First the pit, then the prison, falsely accused of of assault. And then he is forgotten in prison. But he rises yet again, and he comes to be in command of all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And in fact, in Genesis chapters 42 through 45, we know the story where he was unveiled before his brothers, where his brothers did not realize who they were dealing with until he finally revealed himself. And so God finally vindicated him. And even when Joseph did not Uh, or had the opportunity to take vengeance upon his brothers, he didn't. And I think one one of the most, I think, theologically significant statements in all of the Bible about how God was in control of everything that was unfolding in his life, it's when his brothers came to him and they said to him, you know, now that our father is dead, you're going to take vengeance upon us, aren't you? 
And he says in Genesis 50, 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so even when he had the opportunity, now that his father was out of the way, his father was dead, he could have taken vengeance upon them. He recognized in all of it, that in all of the events in his life, God was bringing about good. This was not in any way exculpatory for his brother's sinful actions. He says, what you meant for evil, it doesn't say it's okay. It's all right. You didn't do anything wrong. You know, you were just being brothers. No, he says, what you meant for evil. God meant for good. So in other words, Joseph was profoundly aware of the fact that in spite of all of the setbacks in his life, despite the false accusations, despite all of the wrong that had been committed against him, he recognized that God was in control. God was unfolding a yet greater purpose for his life. And so this brings us to our second point which, is, uh, which we find here in Romans chapter 8, and that we have to think about this first and foremost from the desire to want revenge. I suspect that if, if we were to talk to Joseph, we have to think that the thought crossed his mind, that he had to think, maybe this is now my opportunity to get back at my brother's. But yet, whenever I think we, we, we think about this desire for payback, for vengeance, for giving unto somebody as they have given unto us, we have to first begin with Christ's teaching in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, when he says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The biggest problem in our lives is our sin. The reason that God doesn't want us to take vengeance upon anyone, even those who sin against us, is because in God's eyes, we're just as guilty as the person that has sinned against us. Think of it. We were God's enemies, each and every one of us. As Paul writes in Romans 5, 7, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We're all ungodly. We're all sinners. Recall the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18, where the king forgives the servant of a tremendous debt. And what does he do on the heels of being forgiven of this tremendous debt? He turns and as one of his friends comes to him and seeks the forgiveness of a very, very small debt, he responds in wrath and anger and he has his friend, his fellow servant imprisoned. He was unwilling to forgive his friend of such a small and insignificant debt. Once we reckon with this fact, once we reckon with the fact that we stand guilty before God, that we ourselves are debtors to mercy, as much or even more so in certain cases than the person that has wronged us, that's when we begin to recognize that we have no personal ground for exacting vengeance upon anyone. We find this embedded itself in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus teaches us, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. One of the difficult things that I dealt with at the General Assembly was a situation where it was a 30-year history and a man was hard-hearted and unwilling to forgive 
some people who had wronged his father and his family. And as, as, as much sympathy as many of us had for this particular man's situation, what kept on resonating in the back of my mind is forgive us our debts as we have forgive our debtors. How can we seek vengeance? How can we seek justice? How can we seek judgment when we ourselves have been the recipients of such abundant mercy and grace in our own lives. Now, at the same time, I don't want us to think that this means that we simply have to live with wrongs committed against us with absolutely no recourse. Moreover, it does not mean that somehow somebody gets to do something against us or to falsely accuse us or to sin against us with absolutely no accountability whatsoever. We have to first remember that God has declared us righteous and that in declaring us righteous in our justification, that it is our justification that is the ground for our hope in the face of false accusations and charges. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8, verses 32 and following. He says, but um, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. No matter the false accusations that people might level against us, we first and foremost have to recognize that we are sinners. We've been the recipients of God's grace. But secondly, that God has declared us righteous. God has declared us righteous. When false accusations and sins get lodged against us, we have to say to, my, or to ourselves, God, you know the truth. You know that I'm innocent of this wrongdoing. You know that these are false accusations. Think of what is it that fueled Paul's confidence to stand, as we read moments ago earlier in the worship service, that, that fueled his ability to stand falsely accused before the Roman officials, or to have the Jewish authorities throwing accusation after accusation after accusation against him, and it seemingly just kind of rolled off his back like water off of a duck. It's because he knew that God had said, you are righteous in Christ. Nobody can bring a charge against you. Nobody. So this means that if God has poured out his love upon us, if he has forgiven us of our sins, if he's declared us righteous, here's where we have to recognize that God's declaration over us is not just simply a legal proclamation. It's undoubtedly that. It's like the, uh, the, the wedding ceremony. You know, you want to ask the question, is a wedding ceremony simply just a legal formality? And we would say, well, no, it's not just a legal formality. Undoubtedly, when the minister says, by the power invested in me, by the state of, fill in the blank, I now pronounce you husband and wife. 
So there's a legal proclamation there, but it is also an event that is laden with love. Two people stand before you, a man and a woman stand before the minister declaring their love for one another. They have a legal proclamation of their marriage, but it is not only a legal proclamation, but it is witness and it is about a marriage relationship that is invested with love. And so what this means is that when God says you are righteous, it's more than just a legal declaration. It's also a manifestation of God's love. Why is it then? That Paul, on the heels of talking about who shall bring a charge against God's elect, it is God who justifies. In other words, in the, in the court of God, we stand righteous, no matter what anybody says. And Paul goes on so poetically and beautifully to speak of the love of God in Christ in verses 35 and following. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think of the life of Joseph. Think of the life of Joseph. I suspect that while he was in that pit, wondering, are my brothers going to kill me? And then as his brothers hauled him out of the pit, he probably thought, here it comes. I can't help but think he wondered, where are you, God? Where are you? And as he was sold into slavery, I suspect he wondered, where are you? And as he was falsely accused and thrown into prison, I can't help but think that he asked that same question yet again, where are you? And as he was forgotten in prison by Pharaoh's officials, again, he probably thought, where are you? But as much as he must have asked that question, given the response that he gave to his brothers in Genesis 50, 20, what you intended for evil, God meant for good, I can't help but think that he understood that in spite of all of the trial and the challenges in his life, the false accusations, the false imprisonments, being sold into slavery, that somehow he knew that God was working his plan out and that in the midst of his trials, what was sustaining him throughout was the love of God. It's the fact that he said, I've been falsely accused before Pharaoh, I'm sorry, before Potiphar's, uh, uh, you know, before Potiphar, and I've been falsely thrown into prison, yet I know what the truth is, and so does God. And I know that in spite of all of this, somehow God loves me. I just am not quite sure how. But he knew that nothing ultimately could separate him from the love of God, even in the midst of this trial and tragedy. So this brings us to our third and final point, which the implications for the Christian life. I think first and foremost, we always have to remember our sin-redeemed state. 
We don't want to forget that we have been the recipients of great forgiveness. Moreover, that God has declared us righteous in his sight by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So these facts should cause us to look first to Christ and to give thanks to God that he's no longer our judge, but our merciful heavenly father because of the intercession of Jesus, our elder brother. In, in the Count of Monte Cristo, uh, the main character, Edmund, he repents of his vengeful ways and he forgives one of his tormentors. In case you say, oh no, you just blew the story for me. Well, it was published back in 1844, so it's been around a long time, right? But when, when, when one of his tormentors says, why would you forgive me for all that I have done? Edmund responds, I forgive because I too need forgiveness. I forgive because I too need forgiveness. This is why we never seek vengeance. Even in the face of false accusations of people who sin against us, we have to be willing to forgive because we ourselves have been forgiven. We ourselves need forgiveness. But we also have to remember in all of this that even in the face of false accusations, of sins that are committed against us, we mustn't think that God has forgotten us or that he is somehow failing to love us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Even when people falsely accuse us, when people sin against us, God's love does not fail. Now the question we want to ask is, well, why would God bring such things into our lives? Why would he allow people to sin against us? Why would he allow people to falsely accuse us of things? Well, I think in the end we can say that no matter the circumstance or the situation in our lives, we can say all of the trials and the challenges that we face in this life are ultimately a classroom. They're all a classroom where God is teaching us patience and he is using that classroom to conform us to the image of Christ. I think some of the most powerful words in the Count of Monte Cristo appear towards the end when the main character, Edmund, says that all human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope. Wait and hope. Edmund had to wait on God's providence to see the outcome of his trials. And in the midst, he learned to hope in God's mercies. I think that we could say the same for Joseph. Joseph had to wait. It wasn't until much later on in his life that he's finally vindicated. And he was vindicated before his brothers and elevated to second in command over all of Egypt. He had to wait, and it was in the process of waiting that he learned to hope in the promises of God in Christ. You see, in the midst of Joseph's trials, 
The lens of Romans 8 pulls back the veil on God's intentions. Paul writes in Romans 8, 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Think of all of the false accusations against Christ. Jesus said in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. What did Jesus tell us as as his disciples? Mark 8, 34, take up your cross and follow me. When we follow Christ, that means that we will be sinned against. People will hate us. They will persecute us. They will falsely accuse us of things. They will sin against us. And in this respect, I think that what we see in Joseph's life is a shadowy picture of the ministry of Christ. Rejected by his fellow countrymen thrown into a pit, thrown into prison, falsely accused, and then elevated to rule over everything. But as we look upon these truths, whether in the life of Joseph or as they find their fulfillment in Christ, we have to recognize that in all of the difficulties in our life, that Christ is conforming us to his image through all of these things. We're in the classroom of faith where we're learning to wait. And while we wait, the Lord teaches us to hope. This means that we have to remember that God has not forgotten us, even when we think that perhaps those who have sinned against us have won the day. Even when we believe that false accusations have tarred our, relation, our, our, our reputation and, our, and, and, and who we are. Like Joseph, we may have to wait for providence to vindicate us, but as we wait, we can rest assured that God knows the truth. Sometimes this can be very difficult. There have been in my ministry accusations that have been leveled against me that, to be honest with you, years later, I still mull over in my mind, and I can't push them out. I can't forget them. And I sometimes have to ask my wife, please pray for me, because that thing that happened a number of years ago still bothers me. This is where the Lord is teaching us patience. And we have to pray that when our moment of vindication comes, that God would fill us with the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ that we see in Joseph, that he was willing to forgive his brothers of the great wrong that they committed against him. The spirit of Christ that as Jesus hung on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We have to pray, therefore, that when those who have wronged us come to us seeking the forgiveness of their sins, that we would not be like the unforgiving servant, that we would say with Joseph and with Jesus, I forgive you, and that it would be a wholehearted, sincere forgiveness. But in some cases, we may not see our vindication until the last day when Christ returns and we all stand before the throne of judgment. But once again, we mustn't think that God has forgotten us. Rather, remember, this is what we have to recognize, is that the Christian life isn't just about the destination. It's also about the journey. You know, I've probably said this before, but when we take road trips, the family and I, I'm all about the destination. I want to get to where we're going. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's make good time. You better get in and out of that rest stop in four seconds. The clock is ticking. Go. 
And my wife likes to remind us that the trip isn't just about the destination. It's, it's, it's about the journey. It's about having fun along the way. And I'm like, yes, yeah, so long as we're making good time, that's fine, right? But we, we tend to forget it. We think that the Christian life is all about heaven. And don't get me wrong, heaven is a huge part of it. But what we have to recognize is that the Christian life is also about the here and now. The lessons that God teaches us, even when it seems as if things are not going our way, even when it seems as if people are wronging us and there seems to be no way to fix the situation. In other words, our sanctification that process where God conforms us to the image of Christ here and now is just as important as our glorification. So, beloved in Christ, I'd encourage you to read about the life of Joseph and then read the eighth chapter of Romans. Pull back the veil and catch a glimpse of God's purpose in revealing the glory of Christ through a frail and fallen but nevertheless redeemed human being like Joseph. Or we could, by extension, say, like us. Reveal a revel in the gospel, knowing that even in the face of false accusations as they rain down upon you, that God knows the truth. And remember, even in the face of trials and difficulties where people may sin against you, God hasn't forgotten you, but is instead using the divinely ordained and appointed events in your life to conform you to the image of his son. The journey is just as in part as the destination, and it's on this journey that where we learn that uh, when we learn that not merely we don't merely learn human wisdom, but ultimately we learn that divine wisdom that Alexander Dumas in the Count of Monte Cristo sums up so well when he says the wisdom of Christ is ultimately summed up in those two words wait and hope. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we pray that you would give unto us patience. So often in life, it is so difficult to wait upon you and your timing. It may be that we struggle with illness and we are waiting for healing. We certainly pray this for Pastor Stanton. It may be, O Lord, that people have said sinful things about us. And we're waiting for you to vindicate us. And that vindication, O Lord, does not seem forthcoming. It may be, O Lord, that people have inflicted suffering upon us or have sinned against us. And we're waiting for them to repent. We're waiting for them to to be shown for what they are. And yet, O Lord, we continually focus our attention outside of ourselves and seldom look into our own hearts in the midst of those circumstances. We pray, O Lord, that in the face of false accusations, you would help us to remember that you've declared us righteous in your sight through the imputed righteousness of Christ and that you know the truth. We pray that in the face of trials and difficulties, O Lord, that you would help us to remember that nothing separates us from your love in Christ, absolutely nothing. And that as we find ourselves walking in the midst of difficult providences, O Lord, that you would give unto us faithfulness and patience. And in the midst of that patience, that you work in us by your grace, through your spirit, that you would fill our hearts with hope. That you would help us to remember that you use every single moment of our lives 
to conform us to the image of your Son. And so we pray with the Apostle Paul that whether in times of plenty or in times of want, that we would do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Oh, Father, fill us with hope. Give us patience. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.